I think if you really think carefully about inequality and what causes it, then you realize it's not what's happening in the poor neighborhood, it's, it's what's happening in the rich uh, neighborhood. And, and I think that by looking at the, the upper, upper classes and where wealth is accumulated and where decisions about the rest of the city are being made, I think that's uh, where we'll find some answers to, to improve the lives for everyone in the city. Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. You might have seen the US television series, The Secret Lives of the Super Rich. It's a voyeuristic exploration into the lives of wealthy people, shot against a backdrop of expensive mansions, luxury cars, and private jets. This silver Porsche rolling onto the tarmac of this private airport is a brand new million dollar 918 Spider. There are fewer than 300 of them in the US. But what do we mean when we talk about the super rich? I think the most commonly used definition that you see quite often in the uh, popular media is the 1%. That's Alain Wiesel. Uh, Alain Wiesel, I work at the University of Melbourne in the geography department. I'm an urban geographer. The inequality of wealth is far more extreme than inequality in income. So what we see as uh, high incomes, uh, the differences could be about 20 times higher, whereas in wealth we're talking about a far far greater uh, inequality. And it's an inequality that has been persistent over centuries, which is, I guess, the sort of work that we've seen um, Piketty writing about. Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, came about, um, in terms of our research, just at the time we were beginning to think about this, you know, what produces the super rich? That's Ray Forrest. I'm uh, Ray Forrest, and I'm currently based at the City University of Hong Kong in the Department of Public Policy. Piketty, unlike the more commercial literature on the super rich, said, OK, let's, let's define the super rich as the top 1% in any particular society or the top 10%. I mean, you know, you can, you can cut, you can do it by decile. So you, you don't define them in, initially by any particular characteristic, by how much money they've got. You say, OK, we'll just take the top 1% as the definition of the super rich. Uh, now, of course, that raises issues that um, the 1% in one society may be a lot less wealthy than the 1% in another society. Nonetheless, within that particular society, they are seen as you know, an elite. It also raises issues that in some societies, the, the gradient from the 1% to, say, down to the, re- the rest of the population can be very, very steep. I mean, for example, in Hong Kong, the gradient is dramatic. It's a, it's a very sharp drop. But in other societies, it may be a fairly gradual down to the, the 1%, the 10%, the 20%, and so on. So it, the relationship between the rich elite and the rest of the population does vary. So first of all, as I say, you start off by not assuming any particular characteristics. You say, okay, let's look at, it in a particular city or a particular society, the top 1%. Okay, who are they? Where do they get their wealth? Where do they live? What kind of people are they? And, I mean, the, the super-rich, like all groups, will vary according to how old they are. Do they have children? Where were they born? Do they still live in the same city? Are they indeed 
Um, I mean, the image we tend to have is of a nomadic group of people who have no allegiance to place, no allegiance to any particular city. Uh, they just move around, they go wherever the money is, wherever they can make money. Now, that's true of some, but not true of others. Some very rich families are very embedded in particular cities, have always lived there, and they may have investments elsewhere, I'm sure they have, may have houses elsewhere, but they'll, they'll see themselves as very much local people in a particular local city. Alan's interested in wealthy groups in Sydney and Melbourne. He's been looking at the social and cultural networks that wealthy people create in Australian cities. And he's interested in the role that elite people and places play in the politics of infrastructure provision. I was interested in how rich communities mobilise their social and, and cultural capital to influence planning and to influence, uh, I guess, government to invest more funding in their own suburb to improve public facilities. And, and I did find that some of the wealthiest suburbs were quite successful in doing that. I'm not, I, I don't have the actual uh, evidence that it's because they've used their contacts. I think it's actually more about geography and where those suburbs are located in the suburb, rather than necessarily having a friend in parliament that you can talk to and they'll invest in a new road in your, in your street. But uh, I do have the evidence that some of the elite suburbs uh, get quite a high, disproportionately high um, share of public investment in infrastructure, primarily because they're located in strategic inner city locations. And, and that of course comes at the expense of, uh, of poorer suburbs. And, and what we found is that the poorest suburbs in, in, in Sydney, that specific part of the research looked at Sydney, the poorest suburbs got a very a disproportionately low amount of public investment in very important infrastructure. So that shows how inequality plays out. Alain's drawing on the work of the French philosopher Pierre Bourdieu, and two of his ideas in particular, social capital and cultural capital. My understanding of Bourdieu is that social capital is the ability to use your social network, the people you're connected with as a resource, and to, to use their influence for your benefit. So the same way that you purchase something, that's the way you use your economic capital. If you use your friend to gain some benefits, then it's your friend or family, then you use your social capital. The, the other concept is, is cultural capital, and those two concepts are quite well connected, but cultural capital is a set of knowledge that you have that allows you to be part of a, a social class and, and create those uh, networks. Without cultural capital, it's also difficult to gain uh, social capital. It's also assets that you have that have a symbolic value. So if you have a mansion in, in Turak, um, that projects some kind of image about you. And, and that could be a very powerful thing in terms of um, positioning yourself in the, in the social structure. A lot of it is about status and projecting your status. I found that there was some conflict in the suburb around that, so many people felt that it wasn't a, an appropriate way to uh, show off your wealth. And, and there was a, a sort of a tension between sort of old families in the suburb who felt that it wasn't uh, the old way of doing things and people were more modest in the past. They were successful financially, but they didn't feel that they needed to um, you know, to have extravagant cars and extravagant homes. 
and they felt that some new new money came in and and changed that a bit and changed the culture of the suburb. And the super rich are not just a local phenomenon. You might have seen the Canadian online documentary series Ultra Rich Girls. It features the daughters of super rich Chinese Canadians who are living in Vancouver. And it's broadcast in Mandarin and English. So it provides a pop culture snapshot of the changing geopolitics and the global emergence of a new group of super rich actors from Asia. People who make their money uh, in countries where they may think their assets are less secure will want to transfer it to somewhere else. So the evidence is that very rich people in China or very rich people in Russia um, and indeed in some parts of the Middle East will prefer to transfer their wealth to places well, very typically like London. London is very super rich friendly um, in terms of its tax regime, uh, its, pro its property kind of laws. So um, money goes from uh, less secure places in terms of assets to more secure places. So China to London, China to um, Vancouver, Russia to, to London. So London, New York, Hong Kong to a degree are the kind of favored places for the super rich to uh, place their money. But where they make their money, why do we have all these people now who seem to have a lot of money? Well, part of it goes back to the kind of changes that have happened in places like Russia, in places like China. where you had a period where significant opportunity existed to privatise what were previously state-owned assets. When we talk about Russian oligarchs, we didn't talk about Russian oligarchs 30 years ago. That's very much a product of the privatisation of state-owned enterprises. Similarly, the opening up of China to the world economy produced a whole new group of very rich people. But these people have tended to transfer the money somewhere else. So how do you make your country super rich friendly? Sympathetic tax regimes, you have sympathetic corporate tax, you make it easy to buy property, you make it easy to gain citizenship, you provide the kind of facilities in your cities that very rich people want, so good hotels, expensive uh, socialising, the kind of infrastructure that super rich want, a strong kind of upmarket kind of servant class if you like. So the countries that the super-rich hail from are changing, but so too are the sources of their wealth. The difference is that wealth is based on, on interest. Alain says if you're not super-rich, then much of your income is probably earned through the application of your own labour, like going to work. But if you are super-rich, then a significant part of your income is generated from the interest you earn from your assets. Many, many very wealthy people inherit their wealth, but not all of them. Some of them have accumulated wealth through their lifetime, especially in the, in the contemporary era where we have yes, new industries that have evolved, such as high technology. The changing nationalities of the super-rich and the changing forms and sources of their wealth create new dilemmas for academics. You know, as academics, we've got to think, well, what is this category? How do we break it down? So although real estate's been particularly prominent in the origins of the wealth of a contemporary super-rich, 
there are different sources of their finance. So you tend to get very rich families who've got links back historically. They, you know, they've always been rich families, if you like, the, the old money. But the super rich we tend to think about, I think the, the super rich that have been the focus of kind of popular culture have been people who have, are kind of self-made. I and mean, obviously you've got the Bill Gates. The way we perceive the super rich, we tend to think of people like Bill Gates as kind of, they're okay because they produce something that's of value to us. But we're much more critical of a super rich that have either inherited wealth or have made money out of real estate. So if it's in software or if it's in new technology, that's fine. If it's in finance or real estate, we tend to be pretty critical. So are the super rich a class, like the middle class? Are the super rich a class would be, well, do they all want the same thing? It does relate to whether they have similar interests. And I, I think the evidence for that is pretty flimsy, frankly. Even is there a kind of class strategy? No. It assumes that there are some kind of conscious plannings, even the, the view that somehow the things that are happening in society, or you know, in particular cities, are being done for the super rich. I, I don't subscribe to that at all. I think that's where you begin to pose the question, how have the super rich been produced? rather than who are they, why do they exist, why do they exist now? Now, that raises issues about the role of government. If you look at a number of cities, they say overtly or implicitly, we want to attract very rich people to our city. If we can attract these very rich people, that will have trickle-down impact on the economy. It'll be good for all of us. And um, they produce the kind of housing that attracts these people, they produce policies that will uh, attract them. I mean, policy that can be quite explicit in the sense that if you have enough money, you can have citizenship. So there's that aspect to it that, you know, who else, who is implicated in producing the super rich? Why now? And I think you've got to look well beyond that group, however, however you define them. The role of government, the role of intermediaries, the role of the banking sector. There's all sorts of people who serve the super rich. So we're becoming increasingly fascinated with the super rich. But how different are the super-rich from us? And that's where you get into this super-richness rather than the super-rich. When you begin to examine that, you have to say, well, how far is it them and us? Or how far are we part of them? We're all kind of emulating that kind of lifestyle. We somehow, we're kind of super-rich wannabes. And I think that, that really permeates really deep into the pores of many societies now. So we can't be so kind of dismissive, as if it's, it's them, they're the problem and we're not part of that problem. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. And if you liked this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or comment through iTunes. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.